Chaye Sara. Wow. Which the name of the mimer is Vayetze Yitzchak Latsuach Basada that Yitzchak went out to play to speak in the field. <laughs> and so far we discussed, we opened up the mimer with the Dibraham Asla with the opening verse and then we put that aside and we started to discuss the difference between Mishnah and Brisa, right? We just find what the Mishnah is versus the Brisa. The Mishnah is all of the oral Torah that Rabbi Yehuda Hanafi included into the Sixth Sedra Mishnah, and the Brisa are all of those that were left out. And we have them in the Tosefta at the back of the Gemara now, the ones that we still have. Um, that's the Brisa. And we explain that the Brisa are the details that make up the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the Klal, is the general, that is all inclusive. Rabbi Yehudah chose from thousands and thousands and thousands of Mishnahs, um, the, most, the most inclusive ones. So the Mishnah is the Klal, and the Brisas are the details that make up the Klal. So they're the most detailed form of Torah, um, and the most, so to speak, mundane things, the most physical things, and the most far away from what we call the face of the Torah. And we said that the Torah has a face, a front and a back. The face of the Torah is the front of the Torah, and the back of the Torah is the intellectual side of the Torah, which is godly, which is Torah, which is holy, but it doesn't, somebody with Ruach HaKodesh, somebody who can actually tell the difference, would experience less light when learning the back of the Torah, the intellectual side versus the front of the Torah. And we said that the Torah Shabbat the written Torah, has more light than the oral Torah, and within the oral Torah, the Mishnah has more light then the Brisa. And we said that you would think, based on that, that the Brisa is lower than the Mishnah, right? Because it's further away from the light. It's further away from the revelation. And it's much more bogged down in the details. But the Alter Rebbe says the truth is that the Brisa is actually higher. Do you have a book? I do, thank you. Oh, okay, brilliant. I can show you where it is if, you, if you'd like, because it's a bit hard to find. Um, so we said that actually the truth is that the Brisa is higher than the Mishnah. We explained that the reason for this is that the Brisa is closer to getting us to the actions of the Halachot, right? It's the detail, most nuanced, nitty-gritty details that we can get. And that's actually what helps us come to a place where we can serve Hashem in action, where we know exactly in detail what God wants from us. And we finished off with the quote of Sof Ma'aseh Machshavat that the end, the actual deed was the original intention, right? That when you have your dream house, what you're imagining is the finished product. Then there's all the processes that it takes which precede the finished product, right? Um, step by step by step by step until all the way at the end, the final product was the first thought. It's you sitting in your dream house, in a chair, drinking coffee, right? But there were many, many steps beforehand. So you might think, oh, because, this, because the steps beforehand um, came first, maybe they are closer to the end goal. But the truth is no, the end goal comes all the way at the end. And so too by us, the light and the process of Torah descending is all there in order that we can eventually get to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest, which is the details, which enable us to serve Hashem down here in this world through action physically, which is what God envisioned in the first place. I wanted to clarify, because we were speaking about, we brought, a, we brought an example that Torah has descended very low. And so you would think that the lower Torah descends, even to the point of dealing with who's telling the truth and who's lying, 
uh, you would think that that is Torah at its lowest point, the least, um, the least close to the truth of the Torah, but actually it's the closest to the truth. And I want to clarify that there are, Kabbalah speaks about two levels of Torah, which are described as the Eitz Hachayim and the Eitz Hadav Tovarah. You guys heard of the two trees? I'm going to need that spell. I can write it on the board. Where are the markers? On the windowsill. We have the eight Hachaim. Does anyone know what the eight Hachaim is? Tree of life. Tree of life. Is this two levels of Torah? No. Yeah. Oh, I spell eight. And then we have the eight Sadat. Tree of knowledge. It's the full name of it is eight Sadat Tov which means good and bad. It's the tree of knowledge of good and bad. But we can hold to the tree of knowledge here, okay? Where were these trees? Anyone know? On Adam. In Ganadin, that's right. They were the two trees that Adam was commanded not to eat from, that he made from this one. And he descended into a world that was completely mixed up with good and bad, right? A complete mixture of good and bad, as opposed to the good and bad being completely separated. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge are two levels within Torah. It's explained. And the tree of life, Itzachim, has no Torah, bad and good in it. It's completely, I guess we can call it good. It doesn't deal with mundane things, with physical things, with people who are lying, with, um, with untruths, with evil. It's pure goodness, because God at the end of the day is ultimately pure goodness. And it's explained in Bani that the Eitzachim, in terms of the Torah that we have, you can compare it to Kabbalah. Because when you learn Kabbalah, you're not learning about different scenarios of people doing bad things and sin and evil and temptation. You're learning just about light, right? You're learning about godliness. You're learning about spirit. You're learning about spiritual levels. So that we can call the Eitzachim, the Kabbalah, which doesn't descend all the way down to the mundane, day-to-day -day struggles of a human being living in this physical world. And then we have what's called the Eitzadah Tavarah, the tree of knowledge, and that's where all of the Torah learning that we have um, which it, it originates here, which deals with things that are good and which deals with things that are bad. Um, but I wanted to clarify something that it's called the Eitz Hadat Torah. Because many times we can think, and I think I, I may have made it sound this way last yesterday, I realized, that the bad that we're discussing within the Torah, so to speak, is less holy or is less Torah than the good, right? So for, we could be learning about a story in the Torah, we learn about Avram, the most righteous person, all the amazing things he did, and we can say, okay, that's, that's good, that's a good part of the Torah. And we could learn about the terrible sin, you know, of Yish the terrible sins of Yishmael, of his son, for example, and we can say, oh, that's the bad part of the Torah, that's dealing with evil things. Or we can read the verses, the commandments that tell us not to, you know, that we are prohibited from bestiality, right? Wow, that Torah has descended to the point of commanding a human being, you know, not to engage in bestiality. Okay, that's the bad part of the Torah. We could think, right? We could think that that's less holy. But the truth is that within the Torah, it's the eight, it comes from the eight Hadar Torah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the word. So there is no such thing as evil or klipa within Torah. Even when we're dealing with negative, seemingly negative scenarios or, or ideas or commandments, we're dealing with evil subjects, I guess you can call it, or untruths, 
the, the example brought here is, is from the Gemara, where there are two people claiming that they both own this talit. They both own this garment. One of them is clearly lying, so you could think. We're learning about lies. We're learning about people who tell untruths, and we're trying to resolve that and actually come to conclusions. That is as much Torah as learning about the most righteous person and the most righteous thing that he ever did. The difference is that it's the knowledge of good and evil. So, again, Kabbalah doesn't even deal with the knowledge of evil. It just deals with, with, with good. Um, it deals with spirituality, it deals with light, it deals with enlightenment. Torah, as it descends lower and lower, uh, deals with subjects that are not good, but that's the knowledge of it. It's not the actual evil. So there's no such thing as klipa um, within Torah. Does that make sense? Could yeah? You, could you repeat that last bit just one more time? Sure. So the idea is that even when we're, even when we're discussing negative subject, so to speak, within Torah, it's as much Torah and it's as holy as the positive subjects. Because it's the knowledge of the negativity, it's okay. the knowledge of evil, it's not evil itself. Okay. Okay. Once we get into the world, right, then there is actually good and evil. We have to sift through it, and get rid of the evil. Physical, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, but but that's just so it's it's just in the it's 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 here in the word da, the knowledge, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not the tree of good and evil. Because it was in Ganadin, in Ganadin when before Adam sinned, there was no such thing as evil. Evil was in the basement. Evil was completely, completely separate from the reality of Adam. And the only thing that existed was the, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam thought, Kabbalah explains, Adam thought, if I eat from this tree, I will understand evil and I'll understand the process of what I'm doing, of how I'm actually confronting evil. Because he wasn't able to experience it. He was just had to do mitzvot, had to do positive things. While he does positive things, the evil in the basement just would die out because it didn't have a source of life. But he wanted to know what was going on. And so he said, I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Little did he know when he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God pushed him out of the Garden of Eden into the world of good and evil, and he became good and evil. He became part good and part evil. He had Sahari and Sertav, and he descended into a world where the good and evil became mixed. But when we're talking about the Torah, which is also the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's just the knowledge of it. It's not the good and evil it's, um, itself. So it's just, it's just a little distinction, but we should know that even when we're dealing with subjects that are seemingly ungodly, when it's Torah, it's Torah. It's holy, and it's as holy as subjects that are more, so to speak, godly. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that. Um, but the idea is that Torah, at the end of the day, has descended very, very low down to the point that Torah is dealing with scenarios and subjects that are the opposite of God and very far away from the truth and very far away from the light. And we would think that um, we would think that this, these elements of the Torah are the lowest and are furthest away from the truth and furthest away from the light and wisdom of Hashem. But the argument of this mimer is that actually when we struggle with these elements of Torah, and they're a struggle to understand as well, to get to the conclusions and to get to the final solution of how does God actually want us to conduct ourselves, there's a back and forth and back and forth. You guys learn Talmud, right, with Adi? So I'm sure you're aware. Just to get to one conclusion and one idea, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult and it's very nuanced and very detailed and there's many different opinions. And we could think that the fact that it's so difficult that we're breaking our heads and within that process there's no enlightenment, there's no light. Even for someone who has Rafa Kodesh when he's learning a bride, so there's no light there. Even somebody who is so holy and so tuned in to light of Torah, there are certain elements of Torah where, which are so far from the light that he doesn't even experience it. That's actually getting us the closest to the truth. I have a question. Sure. Is the Eis Hadat like related to the Torahs of Hadat? I don't know. It's a good question. <clears throat> to the sphere of dot. It's definitely possible, but I don't know. It's a good question. 
Um, so we are going to see inside another example that that um, is actually an example from Rashi, but that the Maimah brings for this idea that that which enters in first comes out last. So the final product, the the end, right, which is us in this world, the lowest, lowest thing is actually the highest, which is very similar to what we were discussing in Mayim Rabim, although in Mayim Rabim we were discussing the idea that the struggles of living in a physical world authenticate and validate our connection with Hashem much more than if we didn't have those struggles. Here we're going to speak about the struggle to understand the details that in that struggle, in that darkness specifically, we're able to reach God more because we're not distracted by the light, right? When you're, and that's back to the mashal um, that the Rebbe brings, that a person who can see walks into a room, finds the exit and walks right out. As a person someone has to tap his way through the room because he's blind or because it's black, he gets to know the room in a much, much, much more um, intimate way. And so too with us, we get to know God in a much more intimate way specifically because it's dark, because we're grappling and because we're groping and we're struggling. We stumble upon details and nuggets of truth that the upper worlds are all waiting for. Okay, so any questions or comments before we continue inside? No? Okay. So we said we're on page five. And we're up to a mashal. So we're, I'll read the English inside, and then we'll read the mashal in, in the Hebrew. In other words... The original intention of Hashem, this is from yesterday, is that we should serve him in this physical world where some people lie. And his intention from the beginning was to show us how to live even in such circumstances. So the Torah's original intention was to deal with these scenarios that we think are the furthest away from the truth of Torah. That was the original intention of the creation of the Torah in the first place. That's the ability to descend, to show us what to do in these situations, comes from a higher level of Hashem's wisdom than abstract knowledge of Kabbalah that describes spiritual worlds that are naturally Holy. So I guess we can even make the argument here in this context that the Eitzah Torah is higher than Eitzah Although many places say that the Eitzah is high, but anyway. Um, the knowledge of good and evil at the end of the day is the ultimate um, purpose of the Torah in the first place. Ukamashal, and now we have an analogy, it's an analogy that Rashi brings, of Hashfuferet, which is a tube. <clears throat> the thing that enters first comes out last, right? And that has a beautiful illustration. In this picture, the ball inserted first, ball A, will be the third ball to exit the tube after balls C and B. So the first thing, the original intention, the most important thing, the closest to the truth, comes in first, but then exits lots. That's just the rule. And I'm always, I don't know if you guys ever think about this, but I'm checking in my luggage. I'm always thinking, if I'm the last person to check in, does that mean my suitcase is going to come out first or last? And then I'm always like trying to make these calculations. It never, it never really works out. But right, it's like, if I'm the first one, then actually you think, oh, I'm the first one to get my suitcase in. I'm going to be the first one to get it out. But no, you're going to be the last one because it's all the way deep inside. Um, although, whatever. That's just, <laughs> that's how I think of these things. So, Adam, so to regarding a person. We see this example of that the last thing is actually the most important, even though it's last. It's the end. Man was created last. He was the final product of creation. And we would think, oh, he's the last thing, he's the least important, because you start with the most important thing first. But no, it says, man is above all other creations. So why did God create him last? Because everything was created for him, right? So God created a world ready, and then created Adam to show that the entire world was created for the purpose of Adam. That Adam, man, humanity, is the most important so just like the ball that was put in first comes out last, so to the fact that man came out last in creation 
is because he was the first thing in Hashem's original plan and intention for a creation. The first intent is what came out last, because first he had to make the entire world ready for man. Bless you. And therefore, we find that we can find an entire world in one person. To show us, to teach us, that everything was created for him. Because this is the entire purpose of the creation was for man. The entire purpose of creation was for man. So here it's saying that's why not only did God create man last, but he created only one man to show that every single individual human being, the entire world was created just for him. Every single person. I'm sorry, what page were you on? Page six at the top. And now we're back to... And that's why it says that if you save a life, right? Saving a life is like saving the entire world because there's an, the entire world is, is, uh, exists within every single person. This is the quote of our sages from Pirkei Avot that we've said many times. It's preferable one hour of of repentance, of returning, and of good deeds for in this world. From the entire world to come. It, it abbreviates here. We discussed this quote um, in my Rabbin, if I'm not mistaken. I just came across, I just heard from Rabbi Osvaltiel an, an explanation from the Rebbe Marash on this quote that I found very interesting, so I'll share it. Um, the Rebbe Marash is the son of the Tzimach the younger son of the Tzimach the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he explains in this quote that it's preferable one hour of repentance of mitzvahs in this world than the entire Olam He says that the reward that we get in Ganeden, which is not Olam the difference between Ganeden and Olamaba. Ganeden is the world that our soul goes to after it departs this physical world, but it's not yet Mashiach, right? It's not yet Triathamitim. Um, and when the soul goes to Ganeden, it gets a reward for the work that it did in this world. What's the reward that it gets? It gets to delight in the reasons for the mitzvot. So all the reasons behind why we did all the mitzvot down here that we did, and the Torah that we learned down here that we didn't fully understand, there we're able to delight in the true ultimate knowledge of why we were doing the things we were doing. And that brings the soul great delight, right? So for us down here, it's a little hard to uh, be motivated, I guess, by that reward, right? Because we're like, wait, there's not going to be any like ice cream in Canada and like what? Uh, but obviously, we're going to be in a completely different plane and we're going to be pure soul, absolutely no physicality in Canada whatsoever, no body. And that is the ultimate pleasure that the soul can experience, is the learning... Because that's what the soul is doing all day in Ganeidon, right? It's learning Torah. What Torah is it learning? The secrets, I guess we can call them the Torah, the reasons behind the mitzvah that we do. When Mashiach comes, Olam Haba, we're also going to get a reward for all, of, for all of our life, right? And what's the reward then? It's the reward of the mitzvah itself, not just the reason for the mitzvah, but the mitzvah itself we're going to actually get the reward for. We're going to experience the true delight of the mitzvah that we did when Olam Haba comes. Because now we know we don't experience anything. Um, but when, Olam, when in Olam Haba, when Mashiach comes, we will experience the delight of the mitzvah itself and the reward of that. The, Re- the Rebbe Maharash says that there's a rule with cause and effect, that the cause has to be stronger than the effect. So if I'm going to push a table, I have to be stronger than the table. Right? If you want to move something, if you want to cause an effect, the cause has to be stronger. And so the Rebbe Maharash explains that if we get this effect of the reward in Canadian of understanding the reason for the mitzvahs, 
And we have the even greater effect of the reward when Mashiach comes of experiencing the delight of mitzvahs. Something has to have caused that effect. That cause are the mitzvahs that we're doing right now, right here in this world. And that is even higher than the delight and the reward that we're going to experience when Mashiach comes. So it's the same thing we've been saying, but it just gives a bit of context. Does that make sense? And it's something I've been thinking about because um, it's just not like in terms of, not in terms of, I guess, I've got a but more in terms of like psychologically. We are so driven these days that everything that we do is like a means to an end, right? Everything that we're doing right now is for something else. Um, the quote that like we, we take off weekends to fix, to, to, to fix up the house and we party to network and like everything we're doing has to have some sort of like future goal, right? And, uh, and then you get to that future goal and then you just have another future goal and you're never actually here. And I was just thinking how grounding this quote of that one hour of good deeds in this world is preferable to all the rewards and the delight of the future worlds, which is really the opposite of many, many forms of, uh, of Jewish thinking, which is that everything we're doing now is a means to an end of when we can delight in the things we're doing in the future. It's like, no, right now is the most important thing we're ever going to be able to experience. And so it's so grounding sometimes. I was, I was, because I was thinking, I was preparing this class, and then yesterday I was cooking supper, which I do not like cooking at all. And I was thinking, cooking supper is a means to an end, unless people like cooking, which whatever, I'm very jealous of those people, and will never understand them. Um, but you know, you're cooking so there can be food. And I, then I was thinking, I was sitting there checking the rice, because it's in Israel, Baruch Hashem, sit and check everything. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm cooking now, right? I'm, I'm doing something as a means to an end. I don't like what I'm doing. But right now, as I'm doing it, God's given me this opportunity that right now I'm doing mitzvah. Like I'm sitting and I'm like sifting through the rice, I'm looking for bugs and I'm not finding, I never find any bugs, but whatever, I keep doing it. Um, and I was like, wow, in this moment right now, I'm actually doing something very powerful. It's not just a means to an end. And it's a very, very grounding idea that right now we have an opportunity and what we're doing right now is the most important thing that we could possibly be doing. We're doing a mitzvah, we're learning, we're connecting to Hashem. It's not just a means to an end for a reward one day, but right now. Um, so that's just, um, we, we're going to come across this quote a lot in the Maimar of Yopha Shachas, that it's preferable one hour of Shavu in this world. Um, but that's really the idea. That's really the idea. And so the Torah and the struggle that we're learning in this world specifically that's enabling us to do the mitzvahs with all of its details and follow the halachot exactly as God wants, that is the closest to the truth of Torah that we can ever get, even though it's the furthest away from the light and it's the most difficult to, to truly understand and get to the conclusions. As it says, so the idea behind this quote, again, we've, we've seen this next quote as well, in the world to come, that the tzaddikim sit, righteous people sit, and they bask in the rays of the shechina. And as we've discussed before, the hurak bechinat ochoran, that when we speak about shechina, when we speak about revelation, that's just the back of God. Anytime we say that God is revealing himself, that automatically means that God is limiting himself. Because anytime you want to reveal yourself, you have to put your essence aside and take the other person into account. And that's the idea of ochoran. As it says, in Pasha Kisisa, Kamaima Vera'isa et Achorai. That when, um, when Moshe pleaded with Hashem, show me your face, show me your essence, what did God say? No, I will only show you my back. I will only show you my revelation. And that's even the highest tzaddikim, no matter how much revelation and light they get, or the souls in Ganedin when they're basking in the light, they're getting light, they're getting revelation, which is 
which is delightful, it's pleasurable, but it's not the ultimate truth. It's not God's essence. Where do we meet God's essence? Specifically down here. And the idea is, this is very interesting here, what it says here, hatanug, that when we speak about pleasure and getting pleasure from serving God or from experiencing godliness, so this pleasure that a person experiences in his service of God, it's actually only an external connection with Hashem, which is very interesting. The innermost aspect of God, we said panai is face, but it's also pnimiyut, the internal. It's impossible to comprehend and understand. And if you can't understand something, you can't delight in it. So the moment we're saying that you're delighting in something, means you understand it, you're grasping it in some sense. The moment we say that you're understanding it, it's not the ultimate truth of God, because we can never understand the ultimate truth of God. As it says in Parashat Kisisa also, as an explanation, why God said he's not going to show his face to Moshe, man cannot see me and live. So on a basic level, it means that it's just our soul will depart from such revelation. But on a deeper level, he cannot live as man. He cannot live as something separate from God if he's experiencing God. Because when you experience the truth of God, what's the truth? That everything is God. And then you lose your sense that you are a man. You lose your individual self. So man cannot see me and live. He cannot remain man if he sees the truth of God. Does that make sense? Yeah? And it says, similarly, we see that the revelations and the delights and the understanding and the pleasure of Ganeiden, it's just a light, it's just a ray. And that's why we say that it's preferable one act, one mitzvah, one moment of returning to Hashem in this world than the entire worlds to come. Because what we're doing in this world and what we're enabled to do through learning the Bryce, through struggling to understand Malachot through the Torah, the action itself, without any pleasure, without any comprehension, is preferable from all of the delights, the understanding, and the pleasure of the world to come. Why? Back to the original. Quote, the sof maaseh, the machshava, Because the end thought, sorry, the last action was the original thought, was the original intention. Page number eight. I just have a quick question. Sure. Actually, on page seven, um, so even if you've got eight, when we say Hashem is only revealed in the ray of light, it's the only way God reveals himself. So it's not only, it's God is revealed. Okay. And that's amazing. But the moment we say revealed, we actually mean concealed. Okay. So his light is revealed and his essence is concealed. Okay. Okay. And then that's why it says an external expression of the infinite truth. Exactly. It's, it's the external. Exactly. It's, it's like the rays of the sun versus the sun itself. Okay. It's outside of the sun. It's reflecting the sun. It's giving you the light of the sun, but it's not the sun itself. And so there's two, there's two points here. The first point we've discussed, the idea that when you're specifically in a situation where there's no light, the light doesn't blind you, and you can actually start to grope around and stumble upon truths that you would never have come across if there was light. And the second idea is this idea, if we go back to this quote, no man can see me and live. That anytime you are man, you are, you are in the picture, right? 
then you can never actually experience the truth of God. Because the truth of God is that you're not in the picture. There is no you. It is just God. So even the highest tzaddik, when he's receiving the highest revelation, there is the tzaddik experiencing the revelation, which means that the tzaddik is separate from God. He's separate from the revelation. It's, I am delighting. I am understanding. The moment that there's you in the picture, you cannot grasp the truth of Hashem. Right? So when can we grasp the truth of Hashem? When we put ourselves aside. When there is, when, when my intellect is not involved, when my pleasure is not involved, where I'm just doing it because God told me to do it, where there's no light, there's no revelation, there's no understanding, that's when we can actually meet God because I am not taking up space yet. And that's the, uh, that's the idea of what's called bitul hayesh. Have you guys heard of this term, bitul hayesh? Bitul hayesh means the nullification of the ego, which, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, it's the idea that I feel like I exist, but I'm putting that sense of self aside to make room for Hashem. And the ultimate form of what's called bittel, of putting myself aside, is when there is actually no understanding and when there is no delight. Because when it's delight, it's your delight. When it's understanding, it's your understanding. And when it's your delight and understanding of God, that's, that's you understanding yourself much more than it is you understanding God. Because we can never understand God. And we can never truly delight in the, in the true delight of God. So when can we meet God when those things are actually not present, when we're just doing the things God told us to do? Um, there's a quote, I don't remember who it's by, uh, by a, a great tzaddik, I, I, like a, it's a very old quote, I just don't remember who it was. He says, if you want to know God, you have to be God. Because again, if you want to truly know the truth of God and it's you knowing God, that's you knowing your understanding of God. Because knowing God means that everything is God. That's the truth. So to truly know God, you have to be God. What does that mean? You have to make space for God to enter within you. And the only way we can do that is to put ourselves aside. And we've mentioned this before. That's not to say that we shouldn't have delight and we shouldn't strive to find pleasure and meaning and purpose and motivation to serve God. But we will always, always, in the reality that we will stumble upon, we will always meet scenarios where... You just don't understand what you're doing whatsoever, where there's no pleasure, where you're doing it simply because God told you to do it. And we see that in action in the mitzvah, but in Torah as well. There are certain times where you're learning Torah and you're just not getting it. It's just not... <coughs> That's why you, we, you might notice that when you learn Hasidun and you learn Kabbalah, there's a lot more pleasure than maybe when you're learning really, really, really mundane details of halakha. This is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do and this is... A, and this is the amount, and this is the, like, when you get down to those nuances, there's a lot less pleasure involved, right? A lot less excitement, there's a lot less intellectual enlightenment than when you're learning, for example, Kabbalah. But the argument of this mimer is that that's when we're getting the closest to the truth. Because you, and your understanding, and your pleasure is not involved, and you're just making room within yourself for God to enter. And that's the only way we can truly meet God. So... Let us continue. We're going to go back now to the idea of Mishnah and Brisa, based on what we've understand so what we've understood so far. Any questions? Any comments? I'll give you a second to write as so you're writing, and then we'll um, we'll go back inside. <coughs> okay, so we're on page eight, second paragraph. By the way, this is a short mimer. We will definitely finish it before Chayim Sarah, so you'll have a, a 
have a you'll have a nice mind to go into Chaisa. The Zeo Gamken Inyan Mishnah of Raisa. So everything we that we just discussed, the advantage of that, that which comes out last is actually the final thought, the original intention. And the advantage of Chuvan Masim Tobim in this world over the future, the advantage of doing mitzvahs down here versus basking in the rays of the Shrina in Shia um, in Ganadin when the Shia comes. All of this is back to why we said that Raisa is actually higher than the Mishnah. So this is the same idea when it comes to the advantage of Bryce over Mishnah. Shall Mishnah hukla. The Mishnah gives us the general mitzvah. Okay, so when you open up a Mishnah, you say, okay, how do I, what's the halakha? You open up the Mishnah, it tells you very, very generally the context of the 613 mitzvah. For example, like, dalit tzitzit makbot. That uh, garment, in order for it to be tzitzit, it has to have four corners, right? So it gives us the general commandment for tzitzit. But in the Mishnah, we'll read in English, the laws of tzitzit are not explained in detail. There's only two Mishnayot that directly discuss tzitzit. The last Mishnah of chapter 3 of Menachot and the first Mishnah of chapter 4 of Menachot. However, in the Gemara of Menachot, which is um, elaborating on this Mishnah uh, by bringing in Bryce's, there are six folios explaining the laws, I think, Explaining the laws of tzitzit. In these six folios of the Gemara, numerous prices are brought to explain in detail the laws of tzitzit. We see clearly in regards to tzitzit that the Mishnah's teachings are only general, whereas almost all the details are only explained in the Brisa, which is further explained in the Gemara. And there's actually a law that you're not allowed to just open up Mishnah and decide your own halachot from it. Absolutely prohibited. Um, it used to be, again, that people had enough background knowledge from this passing down of the oral Torah that the Mishnah was enough. They would open up the Mishnah, it had been put in, and they knew by looking at the general idea what all the details were. But we need the Bryces because we're, that's it. It just says, okay, you need to wear a garment that has four corners. Like, okay, like, well, we need more details than that, right? And it brings another example here when it speaks about the command to build a sukkah. It says, Sukkah she gavah, it says in the Mishnah that a sukkah that is higher than 20 amot. What's an amot? Amot is a measurement, it's about this high. One amot. Okay. So a sukkah, no. I think it's this much. Check. Now I'm lagging. How much is it? Right. But 20 isn't that high, now I'm thinking. But like, I've seen some really, like, really small kosher sukkahs aren't that big. Right. You're not allowed to have a very high, but now I'm just thinking 20 of these is like, <coughs> not very high. But I thought I, it was like your forearm. Like from here to here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just thinking now, a sukkah's not allowed to be higher than 20, 20 of these. That's not very high. I never thought about that before. <laughs> um, anyway, so what do we know about sukkah from the Mishnah? Oh, we have a commandment to, to sit in sukkahs from the Torah. Okay, great. Now we go to the oral Torah. What does that mean? Oh, you can't build a sukkah higher than 20 amot. Okay, what else? <laughs> what else do I need to know when I'm building a sukkah? Well, it doesn't tell us in the Mishnah. It certainly doesn't tell us in the written Torah. Where do we know the details of exactly how to build the sukkah? From all the prices, from those which were actually left out of the Mishnah, from those which have the least amount of godly light, revelation, and the most detail and nuance. That's how we know how to build the sukkah. So the Mishnah doesn't give any reason for this statement. Only in the Gemara do the sages analyze this statement and give various interpretations of the reasoning. 
based on the different explanations of the reasoning from the sages of the Gemara, there are different opinions of which case of the sukkah will be invalid if its schach is higher than 20 amot. We thus see that this is a general statement that includes various interpretations and details. So this is the, the examples brought, and there's another example now uh, as well, how the Mishnah gives us the general cloud, which includes many details, but those details are not found there. And now we want to find a reason. Okay, so why do we wear tzitzit with trelet? Well, now we don't know exactly trelet, but why was there a command to wear tzitzit with, with this blue coloring, this blue dyes? It says we, we can find examples, we can find reasons. We can say because trelet is the same color as the sea, right? Or it's the same color as the sky, and the sky reminds us of Hashem and Shamayim above us. So every time you wear tzitzit with the trelet, you look upwards towards the blue sky and you remember Hashem. The more general the commandment for the mitzvah, the more we can find reasoning behind the mitzvah, the more we can delight in the command of the mitzvah, right? So a general command from the Mishnah, wear a garment of four corners with a string of trelet. Okay, why? Well, when you wear this garment, this trelet is the color of the sky and you're going to remember God and that's why we wear trelet. But the more detailed we get, the less reasoning we can find, right? So I'm trying to think of a, for example, don't cook, don't cook um, a lamb in its mother's milk, right? Come on for kosher. I was just in a, in a restaurant in Italy and they, I guess they have, not, it's kosher and they have non-juice cups. So they had like a big thing on the front, like don't cook. They're trying to explain why they didn't have dairy in like an Italian restaurant. It was very funny. Uh, so they, every page was like, there's no dairy here. Um, it, was, it was interesting. Um, so we can find reasoning for that, right? That's the gen- don't cook uh, lamb and spongebob. Yeah, that's kind of a, you know, that sounds pretty cruel, right? Pretty backwards. Okay, but, um, you know, make sure that if you cook something um, in a pot and then you washed it and it's been 24 hours and are you now allowed to put the meat in and not put the meat in, like the more detailed we get, what reasoning is there? Now it's just God told me to do that, right? So the more general we get with the mitzvah, the more we can find explanations and things that make us feel good about it. And the more down to detail we get, the further away from any explanation and pleasure and relating to these details um, and to these halachot we get. Why doesn't Chabad, or many Jews for that matter, wear blue on their tzitzis? Because the, the general understanding is that we don't know, we don't know um, what this trinet is anymore. Um, we, there are institutions that say that they're found. We, we do know that it comes from the Chilazon, which is some sort of snail. I watched a documentary on this. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, very cool. They had the theory that it was like, it's either going to be a cuttlefish or a snail, but snails make purple dye. How can it be a snail? Well, they realized if you put the snail sludge in the sun, it goes blue. Very cool. No, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a whole, and the whole institutions where they actually make trelet. Um, it's pretty controversial just because we don't have the masara, we don't have the tradition. When we, when we're very traditional. When we don't have the tradition, and suddenly say, oh, I found the, you know, I found the snail for the trelet. It's like, okay. Um, we've lost the tradition of what it is, and, and that's why. So we don't really know exactly. So, but there are, again, there are people who say that we do have the tradition, and we have, that they found actually a snail, and that they get blue from it. So it's pretty cool. 
Um, but, but you guys get the idea that the more general, when we look at the mission and we look at the mitzvahs that are brought in the mission, we can delight more in those mitzvahs. We can find reasoning for them. We can relate to them more. But then when you go to the Bryce's and you go down to the detail of the detail of the detail, it's very hard to relate to and to find pleasure. And that, the argument of the Mimer is, that's where we actually meet God. That's where we meet the truth of the Torah. That's the ultimate purpose of the Torah, is to go all the way down to those tiny details which we do not understand. And then the understanding and the delight doesn't blind us. And when we're not blinded by it, we're actually able to meet God. We're actually able to meet the truth of the Torah. And again, the reasoning is because the entire Torah, all the way up to the greatest revelations and light of Torah, were there so that a Jew down here can be doing those tiny little nuanced details we could only understand from the Brisa without any understanding down in this world. Um, okay, so the Gabe Sukkah, so we see the same thing with Sukkah. We saw the same thing with, um, we saw this with the Tzitzit, that we can find, when it comes to the general law of Tzitzit, we can find reasoning for why we have Tchilet, etc. Same thing with the Sukkah. When we look at the general command for Sukkah, the Gabe Sukkah, Yesh Tam, there's a reason why we sit in the Sukkah, and we actually have it from the Torah, which is, so we should know for future generations, we should know um, that we used to sit in huts. And that's why we can find an explanation for why it says in the Mishnah that you shouldn't live in a hut that's more than 20 amot. Because if it's more than 20 amot, you don't realize you're sitting in a hut. And then you don't know for generations why you're sitting in a hut, right? So, okay, it makes sense. Don't build a, a sukkah. Why do we build a sukkah? Why shouldn't it be higher than 20 amot? So that we actually know what we're doing and experience it. But then when you go down to the details of building sukkah, which is the detail to explain the Mishnah, in all of its nuances and details. And it says here, and we'll get into this a little tomorrow. Um, just different examples of what can be a sukkah. There's many, many things. What if you need a sukkah and you're wandering around in the field and you stumble across a hut and it looks like a sukkah? And it's like, okay, I'll, am I allowed to use it for a sukkah? Am I not allowed to use it for a sukkah? It, and it brings different examples of things, of like an animal shed, of a servant's shed, of different things for shade and, and the details. So we'll, we'll get into that tomorrow because I'm going over time. Um, we'll get into that tomorrow, but the idea is that the more details you get, which are the details we get from the price, the less understanding we have. It makes no sense, right? Um, but that is actually the highest level. Okay, so we'll continue tomorrow. Any questions or comments? It Thank says you. here that 28 amos is about 32 feet. So those are answer. 32 feet. I don't know feet. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from South Africa. How, how high is that? Um, is it, it's is it higher tall. Than, it's tall. It's yeah. higher than tall the ceiling? Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah